come to you in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. For a portion of the summer when I was 15 and 16, I worked for my father who framed houses. The construction site is usually managed by a builder who contracts out the various projects needed for raising a house. Masons, electricians, plumbers, framers. The framers construct the core of the house. Building from the foundation, they set the walls, floor, and roof. My dad had been framing houses since he moved to Arkansas in 1980. I remember those summer mornings starting very early, well before dawn, when the day was at its coolest. My job was never dignified enough to warrant an actual title, but mostly my work could be described as day laborer. I got sent on various errands. I ferried supplies around the house as needed. Sometimes I got put on the miter saw the large fixed blade used for precision cutting. But as I rarely could cut a board within a sixteenth of an inch, that smallest mark on most tape measures, my usefulness in that regard was limited. Mostly I was good at moving stacks of two-by-fours from one end of the house to the other. Mostly. My dad is universally known as a kind and tender man, on the job site, though he is fair and kind, working, hard working barely begins to describe the atmosphere. One particularly hot day, I remember having moved the large stacks of boards from where they had been dropped off to the back of the house. After lunch, a 30-minute break wherever we could find shade. Dad looked at the boards, silently shook his head. All these boards you moved this morning, Joshua, this afternoon, take them all back. So was my time working for my father. Every Lent is about repentance, about the naming of our mistakes, individual and collective, bringing them before us and before God, making amends repairing, restoring, forgiving. Since the murder of George Floyd in the late spring of 2020, this church has moved deliberately to address the question of systemic racism, what it might mean to dismantle it, to begin to dismantle it. The leadership of the church and the staff, so many individual groups, have worked to uncover the history of racism and slavery in this parish, to imaginatively consider what it might mean to mourn the legacy of it, both in our community, the larger culture, to imaginatively consider what it might mean to repair, to forgive, to move towards repentance and restoration. It was with my parents in Arkansas as a young teenager that I first began to wrestle not explicitly with racism as I understood it at the time, 
but a closely connected social evil, the vast inequity of wealth in our country, the weight of what some made, millions and millions of dollars, and the great need of so many others for basic material goods, for food and shelter and healthcare and education, the weight of seeing such excess on the one hand and such need on the other tormented me. And I, in turn, tormented my parents. Did they really need to buy a new car? $30,000 on a single object was mind-boggling to me. And I forced them to defend it. Happy were the days <laughs> of my youth. At the staff and vestry retreat last week, we read a passage from Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul pleads with the church in Rome to work towards the virtue of humility, that Christians should never claim to be wiser than they are. Whew. Even last week, that line struck a chord with me. Looking back at my younger self, there were a lot of missed opportunities in the realm of living humbly on accepting how much I didn't know. It would be years before I had any basic sense of how much money it takes to live simply, how much money it takes to pay for the maintenance of a house, for various kinds of insurance, including how much my dad had to pay for workman's comp, the insurance he had to pay into for his workers on the construction site, how much money it takes for school and gas and savings for unseen bills, for college, for rest, for a vacation once in a while. All of that at 16, I could not understand. But that initial sense of my 16-year-old self, that sense that there is something deeply wrong with the way that our society is ordered, the sense of a vastly inequitable distribution of enormous sums of money, the pure injustice of it, that sense was uninformed but not wrong. Now, fully embracing Paul's dictum to not be wise, to appear wiser than I am, I acknowledge that I am way out of my comfort zone. That no complex issue, especially on historic trends in economics, does not come without qualification and nuance. But as I understand it, black families in the early 60s, before the passage of the civil rights legislation, possessed the wealth of roughly 15% of what the average white family possessed, a six to one difference. More than half a century later, even after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, if not in fact, for people of color, that number has barely shifted. And money is but one indicator 
the vast inequity that tracks along racial lines appears in so many other sectors. In home ownership, in health outcomes, criminal justice and education. I've spoken before of the need to shift our understanding of what Jesus taught about the nature of sin, attempting to move it from an overemphasis on personal guilt and shame to the naming of collective, of systemic wrongs, to our discarding of the marginalized, the poor, and the sick, of course, our own personal responsibility in that, but more importantly, about what we have done as a collective, as a town. Another way to put this is that Jesus very often pairs the need to repent to the need to give up our money and power. That if we are to save our life, we must be willing to lose it. For as ancient as the gospel is, Jesus' direction here is prescient. Jesus was uncompromising about the absolute need to change how we live so that we might claim the justice of God, claim that we truly respect the dignity of every human being, that we can claim fully, sincerely, truly, to bring about the kingdom of God. For as, as extreme as the problems Jesus witnessed in ancient Palestine, he knew only dramatic action could meaningfully address those needs and disparities. Jesus often used apocalyptic imagery to accomplish this. Black and white turns the need to change dramatically and immediately. Though, of course, we have made tremendous strides towards a just and equal society. Truly, the great stain of the sin of slavery, segregation and racism, long history stretching back at least 400 years, one that seems still so deeply entrenched every aspect of our society. Jesus' call for dramatic action has deep resonance. That call seems not only as compelling and appropriate as it must have to the disciples, just as compelling and appropriate to us now. What has worked so beautifully in our church, both here at St. Columbus, the Episcopal Church, of American ethos, a slow but affirmative consensus building and compromise has undoubtedly kept this community strong and thriving. But this kind of compromise protects those who already have the power and wealth. Looking headlong into dismantling 
systemic racism, the kind of inequity that has largely not changed in generations. Even given significant policy advancements, that world pushes our eyes to the vision and character and judgment of Jesus, to an austere and uncompromising call for us to seriously consider giving up a portion of our wealth and power. Uh, Jesus gives lots of uh, 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 stories and parables about this. But one of the things that I think speaks uh, most imaginatively to the type of action Jesus is calling is in the first feeding of the 5,000 story. Jesus comes upon the crowd. The crowd is a term that is used the most um, to describe his interaction with people in the Gospels. The crowd is always unnamed. Um, they are poor. Uh, uh, they're uh, moving around the region quite a bit. Um, Jesus never criticizes the crowd. It's the same term that gets used um, at Jesus's trial, the crowd that calls for his execution. Jesus comes upon this crowd. The gospel tells us he has compassion for them. The, the literal, visceral term is Jesus's guts are ripped out when he sees uh, the poor and the hungry. He is with them, he teaches them, he cares for them, he heals. And when it gets late, the disciples say, send them away. They need food, let them go and buy it somewhere else. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, you feed them. The apostles are gobsmacked. They say, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth and feed them ourselves? What's interesting there is they offer up a, a um, monetary solution. If we just had 200 denarii, which is like a lot of money back then, we could solve this problem. And Jesus says, uh, ignores the request for money and asks them to go and see how much bread they already have. How many loaves have you? Go and see. They went and looked. They said, we've got five and two fish. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, blessed it and broke it, an image that we use for the Eucharist even now, and distributed it. And it says, all ate and were filled. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Now, what happened between them um, being sent to go and find and there being enough food for everyone? Uh, um, oftentimes, uh, normally we think of it as uh, the miracle. In my mind growing up, it was Jesus miraculously, like in the Starship Enterprise, cloning um, a piece of bread 5,000 times or whatnot. But notice that the story is very simple. The very first thing that Jesus says is, you feed them. 
that it's on the responsibility of those who are following them, following Jesus, to come up with the material need of the crowd. And so it wouldn't make a lot of sense for Jesus to say, you feed them, and then the next moment, solve the problem himself for them. I want to suggest another way of thinking of the story is that Jesus turns to the disciples and says, go and see how many loaves you have. The disciples found five and two fish. And he says that they sat them down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. What if we thought of the story as the disciples going to the first group and saying the same thing that Jesus said to them? We need more food than we have. How much can this group share with everyone else? That group turned to the next. Go find the extra wealth that you have, the extra resources you have. Bring them back and share. And so on and so on and so on. And by the end, the 12 baskets, the gospels oftentimes use numbers um, to point to larger meanings, 12 baskets, 12 tribes of Israel. They had enough food for everyone, more than enough. Here we are confronting this Lent, what it means to find repentance and repair around specifically the issue of racism and systemic racism. The gospel today, the living water, the eternal springs, both with Moses at the rock, Jesus at Jacob's well, the imagery is that all that we need is already here. Not only is there enough, there is a superabundance. If we can but see it, call it forth to share, not just a portion, but our whole life together. Go and see. How many loaves have you? What is it that we can share as a community? Where are our extra pools of wealth? The inheritances that we will leave behind, our vacation homes, our second cars and boats, school tuitions, Imaginatively, as a church, can we find them? Can we find a way to pull together and share the access that we have with those who are in great need? I can only remind myself now of when I was 16, 
berating my parents for spending $30,000 on a car. <laughs> and I come before you in great humility. I'm fully aware of my own limitations and a great desire to not appear wiser than I am. I'll leave you with a story. When I grew up, I grew up in a small house on A Street, just uh, it could not have been more than 1,000 square feet, probably more like 700. And um, uh, uh, parents uh, were doing well enough. We moved out of that house when I was about 12 across town. Fast forward 20 years, I, I grew up in Bentonville, Arkansas, the home of Walmart. Walmart bought my parents' home for cash because they're expanding their home offices. My parents took that money and they donated the house. They went back to the house that we grew up on A Street um, bought it, donated the uh, frame um, uh, uh, to an organization that was using it for something else, immigrant uh, who had come to the area. And my dad, for the first time in his entire life, got to build the house that they would live in. Been framing houses his whole life. He got to build his own house. It took him a few years. They finished it about uh, five or six years ago. And the Waltons, three blocks from the house that I grew up in, spent $2 billion on an art museum called Crystal Bridges. If you've never been, it's amazing. It's great. That investment from my parents um, that they took, that they worked hard for, has that house has now quadrupled in value. Uh, they have not offered it to me. <laughs> we have not talked about their will. I imagine at some point my brothers and sisters will inherit that house. And having a vacation home in Bentonville would be great eternally for me and my family, my brothers and sisters and their children. But it is something like that that when the day comes, when the inheritance is given, when we are assessing the wealth that we have gotten through good fortune and hard work, a little bit of luck, turn to a great pool of wealth, say, what of this can we give to those who are in great need? How will that go? I, I, that is going to be a tough conversation. Uh, as I, Realistically, I know these always are. I leave you with just two senses of grace. One is that this problem, how to correct for 400 years of just evil, a deep, pervasive evil, we have failed at for so long. I see that as a sense of both grace and hope. Our ancestors failed, the generations before us failed, uh, in part because the, the answers and the, the problem is so deep, so intricate. That gives us grace to know that uh, uh, these problems aren't, aren't simple, that we can be 
gentle with one another as we ask the hardest questions about what it means to seriously address systemic evil in our midst. Jesus never, Jesus offers a way forward in grace. It's so easy to look someone else's solution, to look at what someone else gave, to think it's not enough. It's not pure enough. It's not big enough. To shame, to manipulate, to force. Jesus does not do that. He offers these stories, grace, humility, calls us to imaginatively look at the world in a new light. Beneath our feet is an ocean of living water. May we drink it and inherit eternal life. In the name of God, amen.